Welcome to The Institute, a podcast on the lives and work of fellows and friends of the Institute for the Arts and Humanities at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. I'm Philip Hollingsworth. In this episode, communication specialist Melissa Clay speaks with the Reverend Dr. William J. Barber II, pastor of Greenleaf Christian Church in Goldsboro and president of the North Carolina chapter of the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People. Barber will deliver the 2017 Wheel Lecture on American Citizenship on October 11, 2017, on campus at Hill Hall's Meeser Auditorium. In their conversation, Barber discusses voter rights and the Forward Together Moral Movement, also known as the Moral Mondays protests in Raleigh. He discusses the history of citizenship in North Carolina and the nation following the Civil War. Thank you. Reverend Dr. William J. Barber II for joining us today. Thank you so much. Good to be here. Part of why we're here is because you are the 2017 Wheel Lecturer. The Wheel Lecture on American Citizenship has a over-century-long history of bringing people to speak on campus about citizenship, various aspects of citizenship. Mm -hmm. What aspect of citizenship do you feel like is important right now? Well, when I first of all think about what you just said, over a hundred-year history, which places the beginning of the Wheel Lecture Series in the early 1900s, and where we are right now recently with Charlottesville and white supremacy, white nationalism, unite the right, 100 years ago, almost exact to today, was when most of these Confederate statues were being raised. And they were not being raised to celebrate the Civil War. They were being raised to celebrate the recodification of white supremacy in the law and the taking of people's citizenship and the deconstruction of all of the gains of reconstruction. In fact, 2019... um, 14, Woodrow Wilson was elected uh, as an open white supremacist. 1915, he kicked Woodrow Wilson, I mean, 1915, he kicked William Trotter and other civil rights leaders out of his office because they were pressing him on his decision to, to stop the desegregation of the federal government. 1916, A hundred years before Bannon and Altwright, he brought white supremacy right into the Oval Office and played Birth of a Nation, the the Klansman, which was actually a a movie based on a script written by a North Carolina Southern Baptist preacher and state legislature from Shelby, North Carolina. In 1917, the statue in Charlottesville was commissioned 80% of those statues were commissioned between 1898 and 1922. That's the period between the Wilmington riots and um, the legacy and the presidency of Woodrow Wilson. And 100 years later, we have a president that has run with an openly racist and hate-filled candidacy. We see extreme acts of white nationalism. And that resulted in the death of a young woman. But more also, we see the kind of laws and rhetoric being used that precipitates 
what happened in Charlottesville and emboldens what happens in Charlottesville. And I've been thinking about what does it mean to live in this time a hundred years later and how do we unpack the challenges and the strains on our citizenship. I've been very concerned that a lot of people have quickly denounced what happened in Charlottesville, as they should have. The president had a lot of trouble doing it, but Democrats and Republicans, uh, many said we are against that hate and that kills. And I want to say, but that doesn't mean you've denounced white supremacy and white nationalism. That does not mean your moral critique is deep enough because white nationalism, white supremacy is a agenda-based movement. Uh, white nationalism promotes anti-immigration laws. And anti-immigrants, particularly our brown immigrants, Latino and other immigrants, white nationalism is anti-voting rights. White nationalism would not support uh, um, health care for all or living wages or entitlements because they racialize entitlements. They don't support diverse, integrated, well-funded public education. You talked about in uh, an interview I saw about how welfare, the word welfare, has been sort of... It racialized. Tim racialized, Wise, but, yeah, it, I mean, but it appears in our Constitution. It, right. It's, it's promote the general welfare, and yet welfare is almost a, a, a curse word. Politicians run from it. So you can actually be against extreme hate in Charlottesville, but vote for white nationalism every day. Here we are in 2017. What does it mean in our citizenship that in 2017... We have less voting rights today than we had August 6, 1965, because the Voting Rights Act has been gutted. What does it mean in 2017 that we have the Supreme Court, the highest court in this land, saying that voting laws passed in North Carolina were intentionally racist, intentionally racist, and that districts were intentionally racist? What does it mean in 2017 to see the attacks on immigrants, particularly brown, Latino immigrants, and people wanting to put in law, in place ideas about uh, 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 meritocracy and ideas about um, who qualifies, that if those same laws were in place in 1917, 100 years ago when this lecture series started, or, or 110 years ago, their own grandparents wouldn't have been able to get in the country. And yet, how do we celebrate what we the moving forward but actually deal with the things that we still struggle with. So I was overwhelmed, literally, to be asked to talk about citizenship in such a time. I was humbled. I was um, honored that the Moral Monday movement, the Forward Together movement, and the way we talk about issues had in some ways caught the attention because I fully believe that it is critical for now what I call the necessity of moral dissent for the saving of the soul and the heart of this democracy. And that dissent has to uh, uh, unpack, analyze, and offer prescription for dealing with systemic racism, systemic poverty, ecological devastation, the war economy, and the whole way in which our moral narrative is framed. Because too much of our moral narrative has been limited by certain forces deliberately, to are you against the LGBT community? Are you against abortion? 
Are you for prayer in the school? Are you for gun rights? And are you basically for tax cuts? And and your answers to those questions become a moral framework. And in, in, in my mind and in minds of many others, both theologically and constitutionally, that is far too limited. It is flawed. And in some ways it borders on a kind of heresy, constitutional heresy and biblical heresy, because the greatest moral concerns of Scripture are the least of these, the poor, the broken, the unaccepted. Uh, the greatest moral conversations of our considerations of our Constitution is the concept of we, the concept of saying we have not yet become a perfect nation, so we repent as a nation. We attempt to mend our flaws, the establishment of justice, the providing for the common good, the promoting of the general welfare, the ensuring domestic tranquility. And only then do you have a freedom or a democracy or a citizenship worthy of passing on to future generations. Who are your heroes? First, my father and my mother. My father's deceased now. My first citizenship battle was when my father, when I was born August 30th, 1963, two days after the March on Washington. And the story of my family is that I've always been rambunctious and stubborn. (laughs) (laughs) So my mother says she started going into labor on the 28th. And I said, wait a minute. There's some people marching, and they're talking about jobs and justice, they're black and white together. I need to wait and see what happens with that. So she stopped having labor, and then I was born August the 30th, 1963. And then just 15 days later, people were blowing up children in churches. Four girls got blown up. That's the, that's the world I was born into, that my mother had to bring her first child, and my father had to hold his first child in. And one of my first citizenship battles with my father said to the hospital, you can't just put on his birth certificate Negro because he has Tuscarawan native ancestry and white. And they struggled. This is what I was told. Uh, He was able to get them to put Negro with other descent because he was battling for my full identity. My father had served in the segregated Navy. He'd been willing to give first-class blood for second-class citizenship. And yet when I was born, neither he or my mother had protected voting rights. They didn't have fully protected citizenship right when I was born because it was in 63. My mother was had a business degree, was working in government. My father had a degree from St. All, two of master's degrees, one from Butler University and Christian Theological Seminary, and yet didn't have fully protected citizenship rights. So they're my first heroes. They They made a decision, my parents did in the 1960s, right after, I think around 66, to answer the call of a principal from Eastern North Carolina, because my father was born in Eastern North Carolina. And E.V. Wilkins was the principal of Union School in Roper, North Carolina. He called my father and said, I need you to come back home to help us with integration. Because 1966, 67, 68, the schools in Washington County had still not integrated. This is 14 years after Brown. And my father and mother made a decision that meant I would have to be entered into segregated kindergarten, first grade. Their firstborn son, my father a veteran, you know, my mother a government worker, my father had been a teacher, and yet I went to segregated kindergarten. And 
I think about that often. Um, they could have decided to stay in the Midwest. My father was a part of a denomination that was predominantly white, the Christian Church Disciples of Christ. In some ways, he was considered a star, an uprising star. But he chose for a greater cause to come back to the South. That, to me, is heroic. Didn't always understand it, but I understand it more now. And then I read all the time um, from the prophets in the Bible to, as I say, that brown-skinned Palestinian Jew that was raised in the ghetto of Nazareth named Jesus, people like Mother Jones and Lucretia Mott and Frederick Douglass and Harriet Tubman and Sojourner Truth and Mary McLeod Bethune and, and uh, A. Philip Randolph, W.B. Du Bois, all of those persons, uh, um, Dorothy Day, I think bits and pieces, Rabbi Heschel. I mean, I love that quote, Rabbi Heschel writes John Kennedy before the March on Washington, where he says to John Kennedy, "If, in essence, and I paraphrase, if we continue to treat the Negro as we do in America, we forfeit the right to worship God. And this is when he was pressing John Kennedy, who was kind of nervous about supporting the Civil Rights Act of 64, or Fannie Lou Hamer that says, you know, uh, I get sick and tired of being sick and tired, uh, you know, whose testimony was so powerful at Democratic Convention that Lyndon Baines Johnson had to interrupt it with a phony news conference. <laughs> uh, you know, I love reading the other side of Rosa Parks, the books by people like Jean Theo Harris that says Rosa Parks wasn't some little easygoing woman, that she was radical, uh, that she, she chose when when the killers of Emmett Till were acquitted to sit down that we might stand up. She didn't, she, she said, I'm not going to try to kill the police. I'm going to go after the system of Jim Crow and in her whole life and legacy. So there are a lot of people that I get bits and pieces from, um, that I don't know if I call them heroes or mentors or examples. You know, a few weeks ago I had the privilege of preaching in Rankin Chapel, Howard University. And and forgot my robes, <laughs> uh, uh, you know, my doctoral robe, my preaching robe, my bishop robe. I didn't have a robe. All I had was was um, my, you know, I, I just didn't pack them. And uh, I get there, and uh, and I was in tears when the um, dean of the chapel says, "The only robe that we think will fit you will be Howard Thurman's robe." He said, "We normally keep this up." And I said, I can't fit Howard Thurman because I had all the pictures I'd seen. He was much smaller than me. And they brought in Howard Thurman's robe. And it was a struggle to get it on, almost as though the robe was saying, did you really understand? Because <laughs> I've been reading Howard Thurman all my life. Jesus and the disinherited, deep calling unto deep. You know, his whole commentary on blessed are they that mourn, which doesn't mean merely people who cry over their personal situation, but people who are, have such a capacity to cry over the hurt and injustices being committed against other people and then mourn to the point of doing something. He says, you shall become, and then that rope slipped on, and I had the privilege of preaching. And then, and then in the audience, I was looking at another one of my sheroes, Mary Clark, Mary Edelman, Mary Wright Edelman. And I'm looking at her and wearing Howard Thurman's robe and thinking, I'm just a country boy, born in, born in Indianapolis, Indiana, two days after the march on Washington, raised on a farm and in the country of eastern North Carolina. It's quite moving. And then in recent days, you know, I've grown to love and admire the work of people like Bishop Yvette Flunder, 
who's a sane, gender-loving leader of TFAM and the College of Affirming and Accepting Bishops, and recently was consecrated as bishop in the College of Affirming and Accepting Bishops by her. And her intellect, her commitment, her welcoming of all people as a sane, gender-loving person and minister is just, to me, heroic in so many ways, along with people like Nancy Petty, the pastor, Pullen Memorial Baptist Church, and um, and, and T- Bishop Tanya Rawls Roll, out of Charlotte. If I keep on naming them, basically, now I name you as a hero because something like <laughs> <laughs> What have you, <clears throat> well, another question, along that line, I want to ask you, what have you learned about leadership? We is the most important word in the justice vocabulary. When we started the Forward Together Moral Movement, HKMJ People's Assembly in 2007, my question was simply to the people in this state, is if the same people that attack voting rights attack public education, the same people that attack public education attack living wages, the same people that attack living wages attack health care, same people that attack a health care tend to attack the LGBT community, the same people that attack the LGBT community tend to attack the immigrant community, if they are cynical enough to be together, why aren't we courageous and smart enough to come together? Why don't we model what happened in the 1860s right after slavery and build fusion coalitions when black and white people found their commonality, came together and transformed the nation? Or like between 1954 and 68 when black and white, Latino and Muslim and Christian and Jewish came together and transformed the nation, young and old. Why not do that here in the South? Democrats were in office at that time. And why not we change the conversation from one of left versus right and, and, and conservative versus liberal to looking at what is rooted in our deepest moral values and constitutional values in terms of what's right and what's wrong. I learned that to have, learned that to have a moral movement, you can't just stand up with any particular political power. You have to have a diff, different agenda, an agenda that looks at the dispossessed and the disowned and the disenfranchised. I've learned that I don't like to say leader. I like to say servant leader. I see myself as serving a movement, so not so much leaving the move, leading the movement. I've learned to work in broad, deep fusion coalitions with a lot of people. I've learned that you can't believe the people who say what can't be done. They told us we could never get the gay community and the education community and the voting rights community and the black and the white all to work together, especially in the South. Well, in North Carolina, we've seen 100,000 people in the street at the time doing that. We've seen thousands of people more than any time in history go to jail together, challenging unjust laws and win, both in the courts and in the public sphere. Uh, now we're seeing it across the country as we're building. Last year in 2016, we did the National Moral Revival, call up Time for a Moral Revolution Tour, 25 states, myself, Dr. Jim Forbes, uh, sometimes Tracy, Dr. Tracy Blackman, uh, um, Sister Simone, Dr. Liz Theo Harris, went all over this country, and we found out people are so ready, so ready to come together across so many lines. And now we're doing the Poor People's Campaign, uh, National Call for a Moral Revival, Challenging systemic racism, systemic poverty, ecological devastation, and the war economy in our national moral narrative, planning for um, the spring of 2018 to launch, not to end, not a commemoration, but a launching, a reengagement, a reimagination. And people have said, well, I don't know. Then we, then we have our first training, and people show up 
from two states here in North Carolina. Um, they show up from North Carolina, South Carolina. We expect 300 people at a mass meeting, 600 show up. Black Baptist Church with transgender, same gender loving, and straight people, and Jews, and Muslims, all in the same pulpit. Two, three hundred people sign up to say, I will engage in nonviolent direct civil disobedience at the state capitol and in Washington, D.C., at the Congress, around an agenda to, that says we have to address the ugly realities of systemic racism, poverty, uh, ecological devastation, or war kind, if we're serious about this democracy. We lead there. Go to Albuquerque, New York, New Mexico. Even greater things happen. Pueblo people in the same room with white, same room with black in New Mexico. We think 500 people will show up, 1,600 show up, 30,000 online, 200 people standing outside for two and a half hours at the mass meeting. We go to Topeka, Kansas, Missouri, and, and, and uh, Kansas people show up. We go to Kentucky, people from Tennessee and Ohio, Appalachia, and the urban area of Louisville. We're just in Detroit. People from Ohio come over to Detroit. You've got the Michigan welfare rights workers in Detroit sitting in the same room with white women from Appalachia and people from all over. So I'm learning that a lot of times the people are ahead of the leadership. And what you have to do is get us have a sense that people are not so much ready to give up. We've done so much in this culture to nullify engagement. For instance, when's the last time we've heard a politician uh, really talk about the poor. We had 26 presidential debates, both Democrat and Republican and general. You didn't have one hour, not one debate on poverty, even though there are 102 million poor and working poor people in this country. We had a gubernatorial debate. We have 1.9 million poor people in the state, 900,000 children. The majority of them are, are poor people are white, 45% of all African Americans. There wasn't a debate on the poor. They we talked about the middle class. Talked about the middle class. Right. Right, but not the poor. And then they try to not talk about the poor by saying those working to get in the middle class. No. <laughs> we we had the worst voting, racist voting. You didn't have one hour at the presidential level. Not one candidate was asked, Democrat, Republican, primary, or general, where do you stand on restoration of the Voting Rights Act? If you appoint... The Supreme Court justices, what what do you want to know from them about the about voting rights, the heart of a democracy, in a time when twenty two states have passed voter suppression laws and many of them are coming under fire in the court? What kind of attorney general are you going to appoint? Attorney general that's the friend of voting rights and will honor the Constitution or an enemy? So a lot of times people have been Otto Swama says attention violence, and I have learned that we need a movement that builds a stage not for politicians but for people impacted by the policies and a stage and we need to have a re-engagement in the public square of moral leadership every progressive thing that we hold dear today from social security to the civil rights movement to the abolition of slavery had a deep moral underpinning where people of faith did not hide in quarantine they came in the public square. I think as Henry David Thoreau was asked one time by one of his friends, uh, why are you in jail? He said, why aren't you? <laughs> and he said, it was in the middle of these challenging slavery. And then he said, they said, well, will you, will you kind of repent? You know, you're creating a little stir here with all this civil disobedience. 
And the image said, the only thing I'm going to repent of is for not asking sooner what demon possessed me so long to be so quiet. Um, I've learned that we must have a deep moral critique of, of what we see going on now in this, in this moment, in the 21st century. Um, and I've learned that there's so many people so ready, so gifted, so wanting to come together. And I'm looking forward to 2018. We're building now. We're doing 15 regional trainings to build 1,000 people in every state and 2,500 District of Columbia that for a 40-day period of time will engage in civil disobedience around the very revolutionary, radical, and progressive agenda that, uh, that analyzes and addresses in policy form the issue of racism, poverty, ecological devastation, the war economy, our moral narrative. And I'm so honored to be doing it with a partner. The person I'm doing it with is Liz Theo Harris. She's a PhD in New Testament, a Presbyterian preacher, a white lady, girl, I call a girl, this just as a friendly term, from Milwaukee. Now, she's from the Midwest. I'm from the South. We're working together in tandem. Who would have thought it? <laughs> Who would have thought it 50 years later, right? And we've got former members of the Poor People's Campaign on our steering committee. We have people from, I, I say we've got Latinos from, from the border and sisters from the Bronx all on the steering committee. You know, we have persons who are gay, persons who are straight. We have Muslims, we have Christians all coming together to say it is time for a real serious moral revolution of values in this country. For those who feel completely disengaged, like you talked about that, how we have these movements, one during the first Reconstruction, Mm -hmm. then second, and yet there's been that fragmentation of the groups. How do you keep that momentum? How do you keep it from getting fragmented again? How did it get fragmented in the Mm -hmm. first place? Well, I don't know if I have all the answers of how movements got fragmented. I mean, the first Reconstruction, because the deconstructionists, around 1872 started doing things like forming the Klan to attack white people who were working with black people. They slowly began to create fear. They began to attack voting rights laws. They attacked the courts. Then in 1877, they had an election where a person won the, didn't win the electoral, didn't win the popular vote, but cut a deal with the electoral college. His name was Ruther B. Hayes. He said, I know I didn't win the popular vote, but if you'll give me the Electoral College, I'll give the South back over. I'll pull the troops out. I'll take away the federal funding. He did. They did, and he did. They they gave him the votes. He did what he said. He appointed Supreme Court justices, and by 1883, the 1875 Voting Rights, I mean uh, Civil Rights Act, that made it a felony to discriminate was overturned. And a few years later, later Plessy versus Ferguson was overturned, then you had the Wilmington riots and a host of other riots to quote unquote put black people in their place, and and progressive whites between you know in the, in the late 1800s, early 1900s. Then you had every black member of the Congress run out of office by 1902. The last one from right here in North Carolina, he was put out of the legislature. And then um, you had mostly, as I said, you elected an open white supremacist. And and black men were being lynched on an average of one per day. So the movement was often destroyed. It's not like it just fell apart. Same thing with the civil rights movement. You start in 54. You have to, you remember 54 was the um, Brown decision. 
and uh, 55, Emmett Till gets killed in reaction to the Brown. In fact, the first riots and, and uprisings were not in the South. They went places like Boston, New York, in the North. Um, Emmett Till is killed in 1955. Lawyers go back into court and add a phrase to the, the voted, uh, to the Brown decision called with all deliberate speed in 55, which slows down the process. Then you have the, the Montgomery bus boycott. But look at all the people that were killed during that period of time, white and black. The movement was constantly under assault. Then Dr. King comes out in 1967, preaches at Riverside, talks about the triune evils of racism, materialism, and militarism. 150 newspapers write against him the next day. Black newspapers, some of them leave him. Civil rights organizations leave him. The church, in some way, leaves him. Union movement leaves him. His open invitation to the White House is pulled, and one year exact to the date he was killed. And by the time he was killed, Martin was killed, Malcolm was killed, Mega was killed, Viola Wusser was killed. John, uh, Robert Kennedy gets killed. So the movement didn't just end. <laughs> but we, I would say to people is, first of all, look back at what other people stood up against and come out of despair. No matter what we're fighting now, people face so much more, so much more. Secondly, recognize that we're in a third reconstruction moment, I believe. You know, if if to win an election, people had to, Suppress the vote, get help from Russia, spend $10 billion of, of money because of Citizens United. Maybe, maybe progressives weren't beaten. And I'm not talking about Hillary or, or any candidate. I'm talking about the progressive mindset and the progressive po- policy um, push. When you weren't beaten because you're weak. You attacked because you're strong. Sometimes Walter Wink did a sermon called The Blessing of an Enemy. Could it be that, like they said in South Africa, when the South African apartheid regime really started to hit back at Nelson Mandela and Bishop Tutu. Somebody coined the phrase, only a dying mule kicks the hardest. Could it be that the demographics are changing and such that what we're seeing now is not so much ability to turn the country around, but an attempt to stop a future that's going to come anyway, inevitably? Could it be that we now need to say Martin is not getting out of the grave, Dorothy Day is not getting out of the grave, Rosa Parks, any of the people we hold, dear Rabbi Heschel, uh, but we are their children. Could could that be what we need to say to ourselves? You know, could could it be that even in this past election, uh, we recognize that that Donald Trump is a symptom. He's not the problem. He's a symptom of a moral malady. He's not the first one to use white supremacy and fear and xenophobia. What should concern us is how easy he was able to use it, fool the media, get buy-in from the corporate media. They played with him a long time in the 21st century. But we should also recognize that 3 million people voted against it, above and beyond those that voted for him. We should recognize that, yes, we've got to turn over things like the Electoral College, which is a, which is a relic of, of the old South and the old America, you know, white supremacy. But did you know that if you register 30% of African Americans in the South alone and they can connect with progressive whites and Latinos, you fully change? And did you know that if you change 13 Southern states, that's 171 electoral votes. You only need 99 more from the other 37 states. We need to go to work. for, And that's what I want to talk about at this lecture, the necessity of moral dissent, saving the soul and the heart of this democracy. 
uh, that may be one title. I'm wrestling with my titles. I've been thinking about dealing with systemic racism, systemic poverty, ecological devastation, the war economy, and the battle for a, a prophetic moral narrative or the battle for the soul of this nation. But it's time for us to understand this is our moment. And we've been born for this moment. And there's a lot of possibility in this moment. When we were in North Carolina and they told us we would never win against voter suppression, they said it's done. They have a super majority. Well, we knew one thing. We wouldn't win if we didn't fight. We knew that. So we chose to fight. We chose to be engaged. We chose to have a movement in the street and a battle in the suites of the court. And we won. Took six years. We fought against them paying, spending $6 million of taxpayer money, but we won. We won. And so it is important now, I believe, for people who believe in liberty and justice and grace and mercy and a, and a prophetic, revolutionary-type moral uh, narrative that says the first priority. In fact, 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 here it is. Article 11, Section 4 of the, of the North Carolina Constitution. I think I'm going to talk about this in my lecture says, beneficent provision for the poor and the unfortunate is the first duty of a civilized and Christ nation and Christian state. Now, that was put in the law in 1800. It says not the second duty, but the first duty, which means a whole lot of what we're doing is violating our very constitutional principle. Our constitution says uh, we hold these truths to be self-evident in North Carolina that all persons, this is 1800s language, are created equal, endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, life, liberty, the enjoyment of the fruit of their own labor, and the pursuit of happiness. How in the world can we have a state that doesn't have labor rights and doesn't believe in living wages and people swear to uphold the Constitution and one of the first principles is to enjoy the fruit of your own labor? We need a movement that says to people, if you're going to put your hand on the Bible and, and claim all this allegiance to Christianity, claim all this allegiance to faith uh, as a uh, political officer, then let's look at what's in that Bible. There's something in there about Isaiah 58, loosing the bands of wickedness, which means paying people what they deserve. There's something in there in Jeremiah 22 that says, go down to the palace and tell the kings to stop murdering the innocent and stop taking the rights of the immigrant. There's something in there that says every nation is going to be judged by how you treat the poor, how you treat the least of these, how you treat the sick, how you treat the stranger. We have to have the same kind of moral courage that people before us had. And we cannot, maybe this will be the title, we cannot give up you know, on the democracy. I, I said that last time when I was at the Democratic uh, Convention, and people said, well, how did you get there? First of all, what you should know is during that time, we won the moral revival, and we marched on both the Republican and the Democratic Convention. People don't know that. We delivered a higher ground moral agenda. Clergy did that were part of it. At the Republican Convention, when our assistant went over to tell them that ministers were coming, they said, yeah, we're glad to have them. When they saw us and the agenda, we almost got arrested, and that's on tape. <laughs> <laughs> Because they thought, you know, it was just this group that was going to say, we're for you, you know, for, because you're against gay people and against uh, women's right to choose. But we are not that crowd that believes you're supposed to just pray P-R-A-Y for a president or anybody while they are P-R-E-Y-I-N-G praying 
on the least of these and violating fundamental constitutional right. We went to the Democratic Convention, and we had to push. It didn't easily. We finally got one of the top aides to come down, and I was asked if I would speak. And at first I said, mm-mm, to what, when the request came in. Why? Because I did, because as a moral leader, I wasn't interested in just being identified with any one particular candidate. And then I talked to Dr. Forbes and Dr. and Sister Simone and others who were around, and they said, you know, the message you've been delivering in the moral revival, maybe in some way the spirit is given an opportunity. So I did accept it. And I had to challenge them because some people didn't want me to say certain things and and, and wanted me to, as they do in any political campaign, they want to engage in some kinds of scripting. And I said, mm-mm, because the, I, you know, I'm not here to necessarily endorse any particular candidate, even though I was clear that we certainly had to make a choice. But bef- but in order to choose the right candidates, we need to have the right critique and the right moral framework. And that's why that night, for a few minutes, I talked about the heart of the nation. You know, there's a book out on the heart of our democracy. And I said, you know, when we are willing to take people's health care, when politicians who get free health care only because the people pay for it, Mm -hmm. do not even want their constituencies to have what they have, we got to have something more than a Democrat versus Republican problem. We have a heart problem. When neither party has passed full immigration reform when they've had full power, we have something deeper than a left versus right issue. When we have voter suppression going on in this country, and most of what you hear on the news now is about Russia. We had 868 fewer voting sites in the black and brown community, poor community. In 216, we had... 250,000 votes suppressed in Wisconsin, according to various studies. And you don't hear any conversation about that at all. We have something going on more than a left-right. We have a deep moral problem and and a moral critique problem. And that's why I said what we need is we need a group of people that says, my role is not just going to be to be Democrat or Republican, but to be what I call the moral defibrillators that will shock the very heart of this nation. And that's what those before us did. They didn't always change who was elected in order to further our citizenship rights. A lot of times what they changed was the atmosphere in which those persons had to serve. And it always, always our forward progress is built on somebody having the courage to engage in moral dissent. Lastly, and I know I'm a preacher, so this is my last time. 1896, Supreme Court rules, separate but equal, is constitutional. The saving grace in that sinister decision was one man, Justice Harlan from Kentucky. He was called the Great Dissenter. He had dissented in 1883, I believe, When the civil rights laws were overturned, he dissented in 1896. His dissent, his moral dissent, though he lost the vote, laid the foundation for Charles Hamilton Houston 
Thurgood Marshall and other lawyers to build their case, right? I'm a Christian. Jesus' moral descent, refusing to go along with Caesar and domination, laid the foundation. The abolitionists like Frederick Douglass and William Lloyd Garrison, their moral descent laid the foundation. We have to today pick up the call to be engaged in moral dissent in broad ways, even if it means putting our bodies on the line nonviolently, to shift the moral narrative of this nation if we're going, I believe, to save this nation's and the heart of this democracy from the corrosive elements and the diseased field philosophies and policies of systemic racism, systemic poverty, um, ecological devastation of war economy. And we can't just curse the darkness. We've got to say scarcity is a lie. There's a plenty. Living wages, guaranteed wages, is a must. Education, full and free and diverse, is a must. Health care is a human right. Voter suppression must stop. In fact, not only must we stop voter suppression, we need automatic registration. If you can register for the war automatically at 18, you should be able to register automatically to vote on those that send you to war. The war economy, getting engaged in war after war and spending trillions of dollars on death and not money on life must be challenged. Third, um, um, 64 million people making less than a living wage while corporate leaders make 300 times more than their average worker, is not democracy. It is not justice. 14 million children living in poverty 150 years after the Emancipation Proclamation is ungodly. It is immoral in the wealthiest nation in the world. Equal protection under the law, regardless of your color, your sexuality, your creed, your geography, is non-negotiable 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 this has to be the kind of moral critique and challenging anybody who would attempt to use religion in the service of hate and injustice and discrimination and inequality the silence of the church in the face of injustice is wrong but what's worse than that is the active attempt by certain elements of the church to consecrate injustice, to lay hands on it, you know, to, to, to denounce, as I said, in something like Charlottesville, the death in Charlottesville, but then to promote the policies every day of white nationalism. And it must be called out. And I said it a few weeks ago. If it's not heresy, it certainly borders on heresy. And it must be challenged. Just as those who use religion to support slavery were challenged. And those who use religion to support denying women rights had to be challenged. And those who use religion to support segregation had to be challenged. We must have a moral challenge in the public square today. Because 
This lecture is given on campus. Many of those in attendance are either just turning 18 or about to. What is your what is your call to them? First of all, I want y'all to have some voter registration booths at this lecture. If we're talking about citizenship, I mean, that's fundamental. Because it started out where women and white men that didn't have land and black people they had no right to vote. So if it's an election on citizenship... The 18, let's make sure all of them are signed up. Secondly, I'm calling on people right now, and I will make a call that night to join the Poor People's Campaign, a national call for moral revival. We need as many people who will engage and will stand together to nonviolently challenge um, these issues of racism, poverty, and ecological devastation, the war economy, and I'm on that as well. And not just to save a party but to save this nation and to fight to guarantee that a government of the people, by the people, and for the people is not ultimately destroyed, is not ultimately undermined by xenophobia, by fascism, and also by apathy. Coretta Scott King said something that that I've held now for several years deep in my spirit. Her husband had been murdered assassinated and someone asked her about violence and and I think about this often when we see persons march like when there is a um, death by an unarmed black man or unarmed black woman or unarmed black child by an armed police officer and people march and we should but then I asked the question did you know 250,000 people die a year from poverty do you know that for every 500,000 people denied Medicaid expansion, 2,800 people die, according to a Harvard study? So in North Carolina, for instance, over the last four years that we've denied Medicaid expansion, probably somewhere in the neighborhood, well over uh, 10, 12,000, 13,000 people have died, not because God called them home, not because it was their time, but because of violent public policy. And that kind of looking at issues always takes me back to Coretta Scott King's statement when she was asked about violence in the aftermath of her husband's murder. And she said, you know, that's the kind of violence. She said, but poverty is violence. Denying a child education is violence. Denying health care is violence. Denying wages to workers is violence and union rights. Denying people their culture is violence. And then she said, even an apathetic spirit that refuses to be engaged is a sinister form of violence. I want to call the students on that campus away from a life of violence, because even apathy is a life of violence, and call them to active nonviolent engagement, nonviolent engagement, and understanding that their birth is not an accident, that their place in this earth is not happenstance. But I want to impress on them, if you're serious about citizenship in this democracy, you've got to fight for it. You've got to work at it. You've got to be engaged. And for me as a person of faith, to not live a life committed to justice and love is to not live at all. It is like a waste of time. It literally is a waste of time. And, And I'm calling people... In the few years we have, you know, I've had death threats, numerous of them, and I think about them often and pray for the people who would be so 
mean that they want to kill somebody because I love, I want health care for all human beings. <laughs> they want to kill somebody because I say that in a nation of immigrants, you ought to love immigrants, and it's wrong for immigrants now to try to, try to de- deny immigrants in a way that their own grandparents wouldn't have been able to get in. But So I pray for them. But I also am reminded by some of the threats sometimes how fragile life is. And if life is fragile, the worst thing you want to do, I believe, is to not be engaged and committed. Because whether, for me, whether you live zero to 30, zero to 40, or zero to 120, eternity is longer than that. Eternity, whatever you believe about eternity is longer than that. You know that once you leave here, you're not coming back. At least you have, you know, nobody's seen Elvis lately. <laughs> I mean, you know, really? So then what matters is that while you're here, who do you help? Who do you lift up? Where do you stand, as, as Howard Thurman would say, in relationship to the disinherited? And what do you do about it? And it's important not to just see that as an individual question, but to see that as a collective question of our times. Thank you. Thank, Thank you, you so much. Thank you. Reverend Dr. Barber. Thank you so much. Glad to be with you. Check back at ih.unc.edu for the latest news on our fellows and upcoming events at Hyde Hall. You can find all our episodes of the podcast on our website as well as iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. Please like us on Facebook. And follow us on Twitter at IEH underscore UNC.